And if uh, you have your Bibles and you're following along, you might turn to Jonah. And we are actually, we're, we're finishing up the text, the story, the whole, the entire book is only 48 verses long. But we're going to kind of wrap it up. And then over the next three weeks, we're going to come back and we're going to walk through the book again thematically. And I'm really excited about that. But as we get going here, I want to ask you a question. I don't know if you um, have anybody or ever have had someone in your life who just, who, who makes life difficult for you. I don't want to, I don't know that I want to call them an enemy. I mean, maybe you feel like you have someone in your life who's kind of an enemy. Maybe they, they made you an enemy and so, you know, they're, they're kind of your enemy. Or maybe they just make life tough. They, they make it tough for you. Maybe there's a little abuse going on there physically or emotionally or, you know, maybe it's at work or at school or, or maybe it's just a bully in your neighborhood or something like that. But just somebody who makes life difficult for you. They don't really like you and you figure that out and it's difficult to have a, a good healthy relationship with them. And then I don't know if, if you've had somebody like that and they just kind of keep coming at you and keep making your life difficult and then maybe you're, you're, you're reading your Bible one day or you're, or, or you're praying, meditating on scripture, you come to church and you hear a sermon like you're going to hear tonight and, and it, it, you feel like God is calling you to have compassion on them even if they won't have it on you and to love them even if they won't love you and maybe you didn't want to? Like, have you ever had that happen and just felt like God was telling you you need to love them and have compassion, but you don't want to do that? You don't want to have love for them or have compassion for them? And I, I don't, I have a hard time thinking of people like that, but I do think like automatically, I think of a guy in high school, his name was Travis. When I was a freshman, uh, I became a Christian about halfway through the year. And there was a guy who was a couple years older than me, a um, couple classes above me, named Travis. And I didn't even know Travis and I, we never had any interaction until I became a Christian. And then suddenly when I became a Christian, um, Travis took notice of me for some reason and noticed like not in the good way. And so it began where he would kind of heckle me when I'd be walking down the hallway, you know, between classes, you're going from one class to the next. And Travis would always find me and he'd like, you know, call me names and, you know, Jesus lover and, and that kind of stuff. And, and uh, I, which was really weird to me because again, you know, I'm, I, I didn't grow up in the church. I'd just become a Christian. And I was like, welcome to following Jesus. You know, like people will follow you around the hallway and, and yell at you and call you names. And, and, uh, and then he started to get some of his friends. And, and, and they would do that as well. It's just always fun between classes. And then he started to get like a little physical and you know, he would, he would come up and like try to grab my Bible and yeah, you know, laugh. And then it, it kind of progressed from there into a little pushing and hitting kind of stuff. I know it's hard to imagine that anyone would ever come at me. I mean, just look at me. But I mean, he, he did and it happened. It was really uncomfortable. And I remember being in Sunday school one day and my youth pastor was teaching and he's talking all about, you know, loving your enemy and having compassion on on, on people who don't have compassion on you and, and challenging us. I just remember like God saying, you, know, you need to have compassion for Travis and you need to love him. And I remember like going, no, I don't, I don't want to do it. He doesn't like me. He's mean to me. He thinks I'm an, 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 an enemy of his. And so, you know, I just felt completely justified in it. And if you've ever been in a relationship like that where it's just, there, there's a lot of animosity and it's tough, maybe you can just begin to feel just a little bit what Jonah was feeling and what Jonah was dealing with. It's, it's hard for us maybe to fully enter into Jonah's experience, but Jonah was a, a prophet of Israel, lived roughly seven, 750 years before Jesus 
walk the earth. Uh, if you like this kind of stuff and follow Israel's history, he was part of the northern kingdom, part of Israel. He was a prophet. Uh, during a, I, I want to say a, a difficult time in terms of spiritual leadership in Israel, but in the northern kingdom, it was always difficult. It was always rough. And uh, if, you, if you were a prophet, you basically had a job. There was, there was kind of two sides. We, we think of the first side of being a prophet, which is, you know, God speaks to you, which is cool, and you get to hear his voice, and usually it was a message. God would say, I want you to go to so-and-so, and in those days, usually it was like, I want you to go to the king and tell him he's being a jerk. That was most of the time the case. Or go to the leaders or the priests of Israel, or you know, go to the people, that kind of stuff. And uh, the other part of the job was simply to take the word of God that had already been revealed and to speak it prophetically to people. Prophetically means basically to, to, to teach it boldly, to teach truth, especially calling people to repentance in the area of, of, of their moral lives. And so this is what it was to be a prophet. And, and prophets in those days uh, would be called you know, to uh, talk to leadership in, their, um, in, in Israel and Judah. Occasionally they would be given a message for another nation but never, ever before Jonah had they actually been sent to that nation to deliver the message. And, and Jonah, was, Jonah was sent to, uh, asked to go to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. Uh, just to kind of keep it short, Assyria, these were uh, predators, a terrorist state. Uh, they, these were uh, enemies of Israel. They would come in and attack Israel and do just enough damage and, and kind of pull out at, so that Israel was, was wounded, was hurt, and then they would come back and say, hey, listen, if you, if you pay us money on a regular basis, we won't attack you. Right? Just bullies. Just pay us money and we'll leave you alone. And so this is what Israel's doing. And they're, they're running out of money. They can see uh, the writing on the wall, so to speak, that things are not going to go well for them. And, and Assyria is so much more powerful than them. They knew at any moment Assyria could come in and, and destroy them. So in the middle of all this, God speaks to Jonah. He says, Jonah, I want you to take a, a message to Travis. I mean, Nineveh. I want you to take a message to Nineveh. And I, and, and I want you to uh, go there and tell them that I can see what they're doing and I know their wickedness and, and I just want you to warn them. It isn't much of a message that he sent. Jonah, we know, doesn't want to go. Jonah suspects that if he takes the message, they might respond. It's crazy as it sounds. And if they respond, they might get mercy. And Jonah doesn't want any mercy for his enemies, none. And so he goes, gets on a ship that's going in the opposite direction. He pay, pays the ferry, goes down. He falls asleep. You know the whole story. The storm comes up. They find out it's because of him. They throw him overboard, get swallowed by a fish. He's in there for a few days. He does some prayer, does some repenting kind of kind of repenting, as we'll see. And, uh, and then he ends up being vomited out on dry land. That was a great day for him. And then he uh, goes to Nineveh, and he preaches only a day in, and we're told that every last person responds. responds. Complete success, if you will. Except for the fact that Jonah actually resents the entire thing. He resents being asked by God to go. He, he resents being pursued by God when he doesn't want to go. He, he resents the fact that they responded to the message. And yet God is so patient with him. This is where we ended last week in verse four. God asks him, asks him a question. He says, is, is it good for you to burn with such anger? He says, Jonah, is this really a good thing that you're so mad? 
that you're so angry. And I love the fact that God knows, even in this moment, all of Jonah's flaws. He knows that, uh, that Jonah has still got issues and, and, and Jonah's still got some problems, but, but God still loves him and God is so patient and guiding him and, and growing him. And so Jonah's response is that basically he marches outside of the city, he goes up on a hill, he makes a little shelter, and he just watches and waits. We don't really know what he's watching and waiting for. We can only speculate. But the speculation is he's thinking maybe Nineveh will turn quickly and then God will turn and everything will go downhill really quick and there'll be fire and brimstone and Jonah will be like, woo-woo, awesome, have some popcorn and have a good evening. And that's maybe what he's hoping for, but it's not what he gets. It's not what happens. What he gets instead is an object lesson that God has for Jonah and God has for us. And let me just pray and we'll, we'll dive in. Father, I would just ask that uh, in this time we have together in your word, uh, that you will do for us what I cannot do, that you will speak to our hearts, that you will show us um, the areas in our life where we're still like Jonah, and that just like you did with Jonah, you will lovingly and compassionately draw us to yourself. So now be our guide and our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So what Jonah gets is uh, an object lesson. In verse six, we, we pick up the story this evening. It says this. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. And, and by now, if you've been following us in the series, you'll start to recognize the word appoint comes up a lot. And again, it's pointing to this sovereign God that we have who is pursuing us. And, and so God appoints a plant and he made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. It's, it's, it's hot. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, which I, which I love. Jonah's being a jerk. Jonah has a bad attitude. And God responds by appointing a, a plant that will grow up over him. And it's always kind of fun sometimes to read commentaries on this stuff and you know people are like well this is probably a castor oil plant and it's it's probably castor oil because it has broad leaves and it grows quickly and I don't I don't know when I read stuff like that I'm like it's well it's kind of missing the point right no plant grows up fully mature in a day this is we're supposed to know that this is a miracle this is something God has done and the plant makes Jonah notice it makes him glad which is by the way the first time we've seen Jonah glad in this entire book 48 verses, which is uh, kind of funny to me. I, I'm, he wasn't glad when God spoke to him. Right, isn't that weird? I mean, how many of you, if you woke up in the middle of the night and God was speaking to you in whatever voice God has, I don't, I don't know what it's like. It's, I'm sure it's deeper than my voice. But if God spoke to you, you know, how many of you would be glad? You'd be like, sweet, God spoke to me. Well, maybe it depends on what he says. But it would be great to hear the voice of God, wouldn't it? But he's not glad when he hears the voice of God. He's, he, he gets in the boat, he goes in the other direction, he gets thrown overboard, and he gets rescued by a fish. Is he glad then? No, he's not glad. Even though that's kind of cool in a weird kind of way to be rescued by a fish. And, and then he repents, and he gets thrown up on dry land, and he gets a second chance, and he's not glad about that. He's not glad about the second chance. The Ninevites res respond. They repent. It's, it's historic, if you will. And what happens? Is he glad then? No, he's not glad. He's just hard to please. I mean, I wonder about us, about you. What makes you glad? What kind of thing makes you smile, makes you glad? Is it... Is it stuff? Is it comfort? Is it personal success? Or how about when other people are blessed? 
Does that make you glad when, when your enemy receives mercy? Is that like, woohoo, you love that when your enemy who's mean to you and hates you is, it, it receives mercy from God or when your enemy has success or the other person? Well, the story goes on in verse seven. It says this, but when, he, but, but when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm. So again, here's some more appointing here. God appoints a worm at, that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed, here we go again, a scorching east wind. It's like, you know, living in the gorge. And God appoints a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And then he asked that, that he might die. Is it just me or is this guy really overly dramatic, right? This is the second time that he said, I just wish I could die. And he said, it is better for me to die than, than to live. And so God appoints the, the plant to grow. God appoints a worm to kill the plant. By the way, the plant that God appointed to grow, it was God's plant. And then God appoints a, a scorching wind and an, and an intense sun. And of course, now Jonah's mad again, right? No surprise there. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Again, this feels kind of circular, isn't it? This is the second time God's asked him, do you do well to be angry? But this time about the plant. And Jonah responded, I love this, yes. I actually am justified in being angry. I'm angry enough to die. Just picture this guy over in the corner, little kid sitting in a chair, time out with his toys. He's super angry. He doesn't want to play. He doesn't want to talk to you. He doesn't want to talk to God. And then it goes on and it says this in verse 10. And then the Lord said, right, and here's this point. Jonah, you had compassion on a plant, on a plant, on a, on a, on a you know, just a little inanimate thing that, that grows out of the ground for which you did not work and you did not cause it to grow. It came up overnight and, and it perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand. I just did it again. Their right and their left hand. <laughs> I did it this morning. As well as many animals. So let me just paraphrase this for you. He says, Jonah, right? Let's think about this plant for a minute. You didn't go buy the seeds at Home Depot and plant it in the ground, did you? No. And you didn't, you didn't water it. And you didn't, you know, fertilize it. And when it started to grow, you didn't, you know, stake it up and, and, and prune it when it needed it. You didn't do any of that. You had nothing to do with this plant. And it only existed for a day, by the way. How attached could you become to a plant in one day? You became attached to a plant. You have compassion for a plant. I mean, I was thinking about that yesterday. I was out working in my yard, working in the garden. The green beans are coming up. I was just trying to imagine getting attached to a green bean. I just, it, it's difficult, but he was. It says that he had compassion. Now, this is, a, this is a huge word, not just in the text, but in scripture overall. So when we talk about compassion, a lot of different definitions of what compassion is. One way to put it, and I have it in your notes, is to deeply care for someone or for something, to be brokenhearted, to weep, to, to attach yourself to something in, in, in that kind of way. And this is compassion, and we think about compassion, and hopefully we, we hope that we're compassionate and try to be compassionate. About six months ago, I was uh, reading an article on some research that had been done on empathy and compassion, actually empathy and sympathy and compassion. And I'd never really thought a lot about the differences between 
empathy and sympathy and compassion. Um, but I read this article, I found it to be very interesting, and then I, I heard an interview with uh, uh, researchers a little while later, and I kind of stuck it in the back and thought about it, and when I was working on the sermon this week, it kind of came to the forefront. So I want to I mention this to you. This is not biblical, this doesn't come from the Bible, it's secular, but I found it to be interesting. So here's what they did. If we kind of take sympathy out of the mix, and we just think about empathy and compassion, two very different things. So what are they? And again, this is in your notes. They defined empathy this way, to feel what a person is feeling. And so sometimes for us, empathy is uh, intuitive and sometimes it is not. But there's still a way for us to get there. So they say a lot of times when it, when it comes to us being, having empathy for someone, they say for most of us it's often intuitive. We just, we feel what another person is feeling as they're, as they're going through it. So empathy is not just head knowledge, by the way. It's, it's um, you feel it. You feel something for someone as they're going through it. So if we were leaving church today afterwards and, and we walked out and we were talking and I opened the, my, the door of my truck and we're talking and I slammed it on my hand, you know, you might feel empathy for me. Maybe you've done something like that and you might just, even though you don't physically feel it, you know how you kind of feel it in your gut? Like, oh, that's really tough. Or maybe you have a friend and they've lost a loved one recently and and when they tell you about it, you just instantly begin to have empathy for them. And so a lot of times for us, empathy is just, you know, it's intuitive. We just, we feel it right away. But sometimes we, we don't. Somebody will explain to us that they're hurting in some way and we don't necessarily feel it for them. So there's another route to getting there, which is the whole, you know, walk a mile in their shoes. And that's the whole idea behind empathy. I don't really understand what you're going through, but sometimes because we care for someone, we'll imagine what it would be like to go through what they're going through. I don't know if you've ever done that, and then it, it starts to come. You start, you start to get it because we care about them. And this is empathy. Empathy is just feeling for another person and what they're going through. But compassion is different than empathy altogether. Compassion, they define this way, it's to feel uh, the pain of another, which is empathy, and then to act, to do your best to alleviate that person's suffering from the simple situation. So compassion is defined as taking empathy to the next level, from a feeling to an action. In other words, not I, I don't run away, from what you're going through. I don't try to avoid you for the next month because you're suffering and I just don't want to have to hear you go on and on about how you're feeling, you know, or, or it's not going through life pretending that suffering doesn't exist when it does. Instead, compassion is to, to step into action on the behalf of that other person. You, you have empathy for them and you want to help them in some way. You may not be able to solve their problem, but you, you do something, you do what you can do. And this is compassion. Compassion is when we're moved to action, not just to, to feeling. And they said here that there's basically a, a four-step process to getting to a place of compassion. It starts with awareness, which makes a lot of sense, to be aware when other people are suffering. This is about being attentive. It's about listening to people. It's about paying attention, which is something that Jonah doesn't do. In fact, I'd, I'd never really thought about it before, but I, I think part of what's going on in the story of Jonah is that Jonah just really doesn't consider that the Ninevites might be suffering at all. It doesn't occur to him. And this is a part of the reason, I think, is because I think in a way Jonah dehumanizes these people. He makes them less than human beings. He doesn't care for them. In fact, 
it's odd that he cares more about a plant than he does about actual people who've been created in the image of God. He just kind of dehumanizes them. So they say the first step is just to begin to be aware, to, to listen to the people around you, to, to hear what's going on in their life. And then they say the next step is to, to have sympathy, to be sympathetic or empathetic towards them. That is, to be emotionally moved by the suffering that they're going through, either intuitively or, or, or just by spending time imagining what life might be like for them, entering into that with them. And then the next step becomes desire when we, when we want to see relief in their life, that we care enough about them that we think about, like, what could I do? How, how could I help them? And the fourth step is that, is that we respond. We, we kick into action. We do something to help relieve their suffering. And all that to me is very interesting, but the really interesting part to me was when in this research they talked about the distinction between empathy and compassion on the person that has it. This is something I'd never thought about before. They said that there's something called empathy fatigue, and you may be familiar with that, maybe not the term, but what it is. Empathy fatigue is when you frequently feel the pain of other people to the point that it begins to build up in you, and it begins to weigh you down, and, and it, you feel overwhelmed. In fact, you start to emotionally burn out. And I've met plenty of people like that. I've worked with other pastors like that. They say this is something that's common in caregivers and healthcare providers. Uh, this morning I had somebody who runs a mortuary service who said he knows what that feels like when he's trying to help people come in and, and, and plan for funerals where we just keep taking on the, the emotional baggage and more and more and more until we just start to feel like if I get any more of this, I'm just going to completely burn out. Maybe you felt like that at times too. And then what, what begins to happen? Well, we start to build walls, don't we? We start to, we, we start to check out. We don't want to hear about the pain of others because we think if I have to hear about any more, I'm going to go down in flames myself. But here's what's interesting. While they say there's this thing we call empathy fatigue, they say there's, there's actually nothing that corresponds to what we might call compassion fatigue. What they say is there's no such thing as compassion fatigue because compassion is what they call a renewable resource. In other words, when you act to alleviate someone else's pain, it serves like a release valve for the empathy that's been building up in you. And I, I've had six months to think about that in my own life, and I'm, that's very true. It's when you, when you take on the, the pain of others and do nothing about it that it builds up, but when you act, even if it's just a little bit, it serves as a release and you're much less likely to experience burnout or begin to build up walls around you that, that shouldn't be there, that make it difficult for you to treat others as Jesus would. So now let's step back to Jonah for a minute. So God says to Jonah, you know, Jonah, you had compassion for a plant, right? But, but what about the 120,000 souls in Nineveh? God says, what about the people that I created in my image? What about the people that I have actually sustained to this very day? What about the people whose destinies are on the line based on their response to the message that I gave you? And God's point is this, if you're angry enough to want to die because of this plant, shouldn't you be compassionate enough to want to live for these 120,000 souls? And this is a devastating critique of, of Jonah's character. But, but again, what about us? Are we ever like Jonah? 
Do, do we ever find ourselves where we care more about our possessions than people or our garden or our comfort or our wealth? Where we care more about our, our reputation or our safety or our retirement or our free time than we do about people, about the people around us who, who need the gospel? And so God gives this object lesson to Jonah. It's powerful. But one of the things that we can miss is what I'm going to call a, a, a radical attachment. And it's something that we can miss when we just glide through these 48 verses and move on. And that is something that we learn about God himself as we think about compassion. In verse 11 again, God says this to Jonah, should I not have compassion? Should I not have compassion? So let's think a little bit more about compassion. For God to apply this concept to himself, theologians say, is a radical thought. And it's something that we can easily miss when we read this passage. They say that when applied to God, we might call this the language of voluntary attachment. So here's, here's what we mean by this. Again, researchers say that for most of us, um, our deepest attachments are involuntary. So let me just explain that. Uh, Jonah did not look at the plant and say, I'm going to attach my affection to you. I, I don't know that Jonah did that and had a little ceremony and said, I'm, you know, I'm going to be attached to you. It was what we would call involuntary. It was an involuntary. He didn't think about it. He didn't choose it. Now, how does that happen? Well, they, again, they say that we tend to attach ourselves emotionally to things that meet our needs, whether we realize it or not, or to things that we find attractive, or or to things that please us, or to things that benefit us. In other words, and again, this is kind of low of us, but we tend to attach ourselves to things that benefit us. It's very, it's mostly selfish and it's mostly involuntary. We don't really think about it that much to people who meet our needs or even inanimate objects or possessions. And this is, this is exactly what Jonah does here. But here's why it's really radical when we think about God. God needs, needs nothing. Now you and I have plenty of needs in our life. And so it's, it's understandable that we would attach ourselves at times to things that, that meet our needs because we are needy. But God is not needy. God needs nothing. We might say that God is perfectly complete in himself, in, in the Trinity, the fellowship and the completeness of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is absolute. God is what we would call self-sufficient and omnipotent and complete in himself. He needs nothing. And we might even say, theologians would say, um, that there's nothing that can add to God. There's nothing that can make him more than he already is. He is already the pinnacle of all good things. And so the question becomes, then, then if God doesn't need anything to be more than he already is, and if there's no way for God to involuntarily attach himself to anyone or anything because he's not like us, he's not needy, then how does God become attached to anyone? And the answer is because he chooses to. 
Again, it's not rocket science. Don't we say this about God all the time, that he voluntarily has chosen to attach himself to us, to care for us, to have compassion for us. He has voluntarily made that choice. So for instance, think about how God refers to the Ninevites. In verse 11, this is how he describes them. These are people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. So this is a very generous way to describe a violent, cruel, ungodly people. These are, uh, you know, they are more violent and more vile than anyone that you have ever met in your life. And yet, this is how God describes them. Now, this whole idea of not knowing the difference between their right and their left hand is a figure of speech. And what he's saying, to paraphrase it, is this. These are people who are spiritually blind. These are people who have lost their way. These are people who haven't the first clue as to the source of their problems or what could be done about them. They are spiritually dead. They cannot help themselves. Wouldn't you say that that's true of a lot of people today? Wouldn't you say that we live in a culture that increasingly (laughs) is filled with people who don't know how they got here or why they're here or what their purpose is in life? They don't know the difference between truth in a lie, they don't know what is ahead, they don't understand the gospel or Jesus, and yet think about how God spoke about the Ninevites, these cruel Ninevites, and how graceful he was, and think how ungracious we often are towards people like that in our world. How often do we look at people in our lives who don't know the difference between their right and left hand, and when they make bad, sinful choices, and they bring upon themselves because of their foolishness problems, how often do we say, well, it serves them right? How often do we say things like, well, they're just getting what they deserve? How often do we mock them on social media and Facebook and tweet about them, and when they suffer a defeat, we gloat all over that? And there's a lot of reasons we do it. Part of it is because we are proud. There's a little bit of Jonah in us, He was certainly proud of his heritage. We can be proud and begin to think we're better than other people when we forget it's only the grace of God. I think part of it sometimes is a defense mechanism. We just don't want the unhappiness of other people to become ours. So it's way easier just to build a wall and to just dehumanize them and judge them. But God doesn't do that. That's kind of the point here. God doesn't do that. God voluntarily attaches himself to sinful wicked, clueless people. This is why Jesus came, to seek after us. Our trouble becomes his trouble. Our sadness becomes his sadness. Of Jonah, John Calvin said this. He said, unlike God, Jonah was very inhumane towards the Ninevites. He treated them as if they were less than human. Again, I wonder, do we ever do that with people in our lives who don't know the difference between their right and their left hand, but we practically dehumanize them. And God's point is this, Jonah, I am weeping over this city. I am weeping over this people. Why aren't you? And that's a good question for a prophet, and it's an equally good question for a Christian who claims to walk in the path of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, so let's think about Jesus for a minute. 
What was Jesus like? If Jesus came and he was the embodiment of God, right? So maybe we wonder, well, I, I mean, Jonah, that was a long time ago. And, you know, what would God do if he was in my shoes today in my world? And hey, good news. We actually know that because we have Jesus. We have God in the flesh. So consider, for instance, the last week of Jesus' earthly life. Remember that story? He's, he's riding into Jerusalem and he's, he's, he's looking down on the city full of people and he knows he's about to suffer at the hands of these people, uh, of the leaders, of the citizens, of the Jews, of the Romans. They're about to reject him and crucify him. And do you remember what he said when he was looking down on that situation? It says in Luke 19, and when he, when he drew near and he saw the city, he, oh, it sounds familiar, he wept over it. He said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes because you did not know the time of your visitation. Instead of being full of anger like Jonah, Jesus wept over them. He had compassion over them. Did they deserve it? No. But Jesus chose compassion. Or consider the cross. Consider what happens at the end of that story And the cross, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And remember what he prays? He says, Father, forgive them. And then here's what he says, for they know not what they do. What's he saying? These people are rejecting me. They're betraying me. They're torturing me. They're killing me, but they don't understand what they're doing. They're like people who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left, which indeed they don't. Now he doesn't say they're not guilty of sin because they absolutely are which is why Jesus has to die for them and for us. But he's also saying this. These people are confused. They're somewhat clueless. They're, they're not able to really recognize the horror of what it is they're doing, that, which is certainly true, isn't it? They could not comprehend what it is that they were doing as they crucified Jesus. But that right there is the ultimate expression of a compassionate heart. It's the choice of God. God's voluntary compassion was demonstrated on the cross. We understand the theological underpinnings of all this. In Romans, it tells us this, that God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What happens here is that Jesus makes our sin problem his sin problem. So that's not just empathy, it's compassion. Right? He, he does something to alleviate our suffering. He makes our sin problem his sin problem, even though it wasn't his problem. He takes our sin upon himself. He t- takes the wrath of our sin upon himself. He takes the punishment. He pays the price. And he offers for those who trust him the forgiveness of sin. He offers them, he says, justification that we can be right with God. This is the character of compassion in the person of Jesus Christ, who we call Lord. And and we we are his disciples. So we are those who supposedly walk like him and and treat other people like, like him. And so we come to the end of the book, and at the end of the book, what we have is an open-ended question. The, the end of Jonah is not like you would expect, and it it feels not quite satisfying if you've read the whole book and got to the end. Here is the last verse of the book. God says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand. As well as many animals, the end. 
Isn't that a really satisfying story? <laughs> it ends with a question that Jonah doesn't answer. We don't know what Jonah says. We don't know if Jonah shakes his fist at God and says, I still want to die, or if he gets on his knees and repents, or he cries, or we, we don't know. What does Jonah do? Well, my take, and it's not just my take, but there are other pastors as well who will say that, that probably what happens in the long run, we don't know if it was a day or a week or 10 years, but I think there came a point when Jonah comes to his senses and realizes what it is that God's teaching him. Because think about it this way. How do we know about the story of Jonah in the first place? Like, how do we know that Jonah was so defiant? How do we know about the anger in his heart? How do we know about his unloving attitude? How do we know about the, the ongoing discussion, as we talked about last week, that he kept having with God when he hadn't told it to anyone else? How do we know about his prayer inside the fish? There was nobody in the fish taking notes, you know? How do we know about these things? Well, I think at some point Jonah had to tell other people. I think there came a point in Jonah's life where he became so secure in the love of God and the grace of God and he didn't want to see other people make the same mistake he made and so he began to share. And through the power of the Holy, the leading of the Holy Spirit, he, you know, probably it was him who wrote this book. That's why I think it's probably autobiographical. But it remains unfinished for a reason because I think God wants us to wrestle with the question in our own lives. Like, how would you answer the question in your life? I mean, not just how would you answer it with words. Let me ask you this. How are you answering the question by the way that you live? What did you do yesterday? What have you done today in terms of answering this question in a way that really reflects the heart of the Father and of our, of our Savior? And while there's many, many ways to do this, let me just close with this. It's in your notes. Just... Two practical ways to choose compassion. Big, broad ways, and we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. But you say, well, how do I do this? How do I put this into action? How do I answer with my life? Well, the first way is just, you know, to love your neighbor as yourself. You, you probably remember the story, right? Jesus one day is teaching, and this guy comes up, and, you know, he's, he says, you know, there's a lot of laws, Jesus, and the Jews, we have a lot of rules, and, like, if you just had to wrap up all of life, if you just had, like, a one minute, what is life about? In the end, what's the main thing of life? You remember what Jesus said, right? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, and really what he's saying here is the second is the same thing. It's like two sides of the same coin. He says, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You go to 1 John and you get basically the picture that you cannot do one without the other. You cannot truly love God without loving your neighbor as yourself. And so we have this idea. And you might remember in the story, the, the guy in the story who asked Jesus the question is a little skeptical and he's looking for a loophole, which is what they often did. And so he desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And you remember Jesus gives a story. I just want to read it for you. I'm not going to get into details, but just read it for you. Who is my neighbor? So Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. That was a bad road to travel in those days, especially by yourself, so it's not shocking that he fell amongst robbers. And they stripped him, and they beat him, and they departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest that was a religious leader who was tasked with the job of, of leading people spiritually and ushering them into a relationship with God and encouraging that, was going down the road, and when he saw this man, he passed by on the other side. That's a little unexpected. And then a, a Levite, another Jew, it says when, when he came to the place and saw him, 
pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, this would have made everyone sit up because the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. Now Jesus is Jewish and he's telling the story to Jews and the Samaritans are really outcasts. They don't get along. They're definitely, you know, at, at odds with each other. So a Samaritan comes along and as he journeyed, he came to where he was and he saw this man and he had what? Compassion, right? So what does that mean? Well, he went to him and he bounded up his wounds and he poured on oil and wine and, and, then, and then he sent him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him and the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper and he said, take care of this man and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asked, so which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? It's not a trick question. <laughs> and he said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said to him, and by the way, says to you, and he says to me, great, that's the right answer. Now go and do likewise. By the way, no exceptions, no loopholes, right? It doesn't matter the color of the person's skin. It doesn't matter what religion they belong to or which side of the border they live on or what economic class they are part of or how much education or, or, or what language they speak or whether or not you decide that they're deserving, don't we do that sometimes? We're like, well, I'll help people that I think deserve it. But Jesus doesn't give us that out. He simply says this, when you see a human being, right? Stop dehumanizing people. When you see a human being created in the image of God and they're suffering and you have the means to help them, then by all means be compassionate like your Lord Jesus Christ. Do what you can and show grace. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not rocket science. We know what it means. And the second thing is this. Jesus says, share the gospel. Because people don't just need to be fed and taken care of. They need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done. In Mark, Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. When you hear the Great Commission, do you feel like Jonah did, right? When God told Jonah to go to this people and take a message, he resented it. He felt like it was a burden that had been heaped on him that he didn't want to carry. Do you ever feel like that? When you hear the pastor preaching about taking the gospel, you're like, oh, here we go again. Or do we reflect the heart of compassion of our Lord? So we talk all the time about having gospel conversations, right? Just any discussion with someone about the personal work of Christ or what he means to you or what he's done in your life. And, and summer is upon us. It seems like it's almost here or practically here or as much summer as it's gonna be here. And, and summer is like a natural time for us. I, I feel like when it comes to having gospel conversations because I, like, I don't think I've seen my neighbors since October, and then yesterday, it was like, you know, the, the sun came up. Did that, I don't know if this happened to your neighbor. The sun came up, and I went out in my front yard, and it's like all my neighbors came out of hibernation on the same day, and they all walked out and stretched and yawned, and we're like, hey, I remember you, and now everyone, we're all in our yards, and we're all working. It's just a great time to reconnect with people, and as you reconnect with them, to love them and meet needs and to share the gospel with them. Folks, don't, don't be a Jonah, right? Someone who doesn't care about his neighbors. Someone who wanted to uh, uh, avoid them. We have been given the best message, the good news. So we take that to the people around us. And so 
You know what? Days are long, like the sun doesn't set for a couple hours, so this is awesome because I'm gonna pray and then you can go and instantly do this wherever you go. Like tonight, you can go out and you can show that you have compassion. Maybe go home to your neighbors and say hi to them. Get in a conversation and love them and tell them about Jesus. Let me pray for us and we'll send you on your way.